Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. When you hear their names, you think of golf royalty. Nicholas, Hogan, Palmer, Woods, Sneed, Nelson. And don't forget about Player, Faldo, Sarazen, Hagen, and of course, Bobby Jones. That's a ton of majors, including 28 Masters Championships. But the first man to win the Masters three times is not on that list. A guy who won 31 times on the PGA Tour and one of golf's most colorful competitors ever. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back at his Hall of Fame career. We're talking about the great Jimmy DeMary. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 53 the start of our third year of looking back at the players whom time has forgotten. Players who shaped the games we love to watch, but for whatever reason, their names just don't resonate like Ruth, or Jordan, or Unitas, or Nicholas. And today, a perfect example, Jimmy Demerit. Yes, with the Masters getting ready to tee off, what a great time to look back at one of golf's truly remarkable careers, that of Jimmy DeMerit. The first man to win the Masters three times, and a guy who won 31 times on tour. And joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes is John Companion, author of the book, The Swing's the Thing, a terrific biography about Jimmy DeMerit. And we're going to cover so much about DeMerit, including those three wins at the Masters, how good his game was, his friendship with the immortal Ben Hogan, and of course, his colorful wardrobe. Now, before we get to Jimmy, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for writing in, giving us ratings, and I encourage everyone to continue. Now, you have someone or a team you'd like to hear or learn more about? Please send us a note by visiting sportsfh.com to submit your comments or suggestions there. And please continue with the five-star ratings. Love to hear from you and see that you like what you're listening to. As always, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook or visit sportsfh.com where you can submit questions, comments, 
Learn more about our guests. Find out more about the forgotten heroes we talk about, like Jimmy Demerit. He was such a terrific golfer, a Hall of Famer who very rarely gets his due. I mean, Demerit is still in the top 20 of golfers who have the most wins on tour with 31. Three times he won the Masters, and again, the Masters is upon us. So I don't think there's any better time than now to talk about Jimmy Demerit. So, joining us now is the author of the terrific biography about Jimmy Demerit, The Swings the Thing, John Compton. John, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Wonderful to be here. Hey, you know... Sports are funny. When a player is relevant, still playing the game, their name is familiar. Everyone knows who they are, especially if they're good. Then there are the legends, guys who, for whatever reason, rise above it all and their names live on forever. You know, guys like Babe Ruth or Jim Brown, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky. And in golf, it's really no different. Ben Hogan, Byron Nelson... Sam Sneed, Arnie, Jack, Tiger. And then there are the other guys. And today we're going to talk about one of those guys, Jimmy Demerit. So, John, tell us a little bit about Jimmy. Who was he and why is his name not as recognizable or as memorable as his fellow touring pros of the day? Well, just to briefly cover his career. He was born in 1910 in Houston and lived until 1983. And he was active on the professional tour from about 1934 until the last Masters he played in was 62 and he finished fifth at age 51, which today would be absolutely astonishing. Wow. Um, And he contended for the 1957 U.S. Open when he was 47 years old. Uh, his greatest accomplishment, I think, was that he was the first guy to win the Masters three times. That was in 1940, and 1947, and 1950. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and uh, but he helped found Champions Golf Club in Houston, which has hosted a U.S. Open in 1969, a Ryder Cup, a PGA, and as well as uh, used to alternately uh, every other year host the Tour Championship, which is now at East Lake in Atlanta. But Demerit affected the game in many different areas. But it, as you say, time uh, moves on, and there have been uh, other remarkable uh, players in the game. But on the other hand, Demerit still ranks number 16th on the list of all-time winners on the PGA Tour. He won 31 events, three majors over a 20-year span of uh, when he won events. That's from 38 to 57, even though he actually contended he played in events before 38 and then after 57. But uh, it, it used to be number 10th on that list, but he's been passed by Tiger Woods, who's now second on the list, Phil Mickelson, Tom Watson, B.J. Singh, etc. But uh, again, I, I, I think it's a shame that Demerit has been uh, overlooked because he was a very colorful figure. He was a very accomplished player. Hogan thought he was one of the greatest players ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Harvey Harvey Pinnock, who you may know of, the fellow that wrote the great books yep. about golf. Yeah. When when Pinnock saw Demerit play in the late '30s in an event 
he liked his swing so much that he got a photograph of demerit in his finish, you know, after he had finished his swing. And he uh, taped that photograph to the window of his uh, pro shop where he worked to give you an idea of how he affected people. But as I say, I, I think uh, time's moved on and, and we tend to forget what might be the second level of players and focus only on the the, the, uh, the highest level of mm-hmm. superstars in, in any sport. Yep, that's thus the reason I have Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey, John, where did your interest in Jimmy come from? Why write a book about Jimmy Demerit? Well, as I say, he was a very colorful person, uh, but I, I think the main stimulation came from the fact that Demerit in 1954 wrote and published a book called My Partner Ben Hogan. And the book is about 75% about Hogan, and they were great friends. They partnered to win six four-ball matches on the PGA Tour, which used to be a very uh, regular part of the tour. It's, you know, it's on, I think there may be one event now on the PGA Tour that's of that format, I'm, unless I'm confused about that. But anyway, they were great friends, and uh, Demerit wrote this book. But about 25% of the book was about demerit. And when I was sort of introduced in more in-depth into what uh, the guy had accomplished and his personality, I realized, gosh, this would be an interesting guy to to learn more about. Mm -hmm. And as I learned more, he only became more interesting. He was friends with Bob Hope, for example. He was friends with Gene Cernan. That's the man who was the last person to walk on the moon, the astronaut. Hmm. Uh, he, he played golf with presidents. He toured the world and in the golf again, the first guy to win the masters three times. He's just a remarkable figure. And the more I learned about him, the more I became interested and fascinated by the guy. Sure. Sure. You know, he played the game when it wasn't like it is today, particularly when it comes to to the size of the purses. You know, in fact, there were times when if you didn't finish amongst the leaders, you didn't earn a dime. How tough. That's that's including even in the masters, the masters, even into the forties, only the top 12 finishers earned a cent. So imagine, I mean, talk about grinding. Yeah. Uh, You know, to, to gay, a guy can not win a tournament in his career and he could finish after 15 years on the PGA tour and he could have a comp, you know, a a symbol of net worth of $5 million (laughs) at minimum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it was a completely different era. And even Byron Nelson used to say they sometimes won more money on side bets among the players (laughs) than they would win. even if they won the event that week, so it was a different circumstance altogether. And uh, even into the 40s, even in the 50s, a lot of the PGA Tour pros still had an affiliation with a, a country club. They would be the yep. head professional. Mm-hmm. And even Byron Nelson, when he was the head professional at Inverness, this is the late 30s, early 40s, um, he would be gone so much to pre- compete on the PGA Tour. And even though he brought recognition to that club because he was one of the best players in the nation. The club members resented it. And he, that's when he decided to quit and he became one of the first pros to be a full-time professional golfer and not have a club affiliation. Why would the membership, why would the membership not like that? Why would they resent that? Well, it just shows you how different in an era it was. Um, going back to the 1920s, uh, 
a club, a professional golfer was not allowed in the clubhouse when they came to play in a professional event. I mean, it was just a, you know, they were considered like, uh, well, uh, not an employee, but they, they just didn't have a high standing. And Walter Hagen was one of the first people to turn that around and insist that he be given respect and recognition. And, mm-hmm. uh, but he was unique in the twenties and the thirties. And as I say, uh, Nelson quit his, uh, head professional job in the early forties, but he was one of the very few that could afford to do that. He had some, uh, product endorsements and, um, was earning enough money himself because he was you know, top money earner on the tour at the time. But most people had to have a, an affiliation with a, a club. But to your question, though, I think the membership resented it because they wanted somebody in the pro shop selling them golf mm-hmm. shoes and golf balls, and they didn't care what the guy was accomplishing uh, elsewhere. Interesting. So back to Jimmy. He won his first tournament, if I follow this correctly, in 1934. That was the Texas PGA. And he collected all of $25 for his victory. And he had to split it 50-50 with his caddy. I mean, you That's could right. not earn a living. That's right. Yeah, you're very right. It, it, it just, well, I, even into the early uh, 60s, um, Arnold Palmer was one of the first people to earn sizable money. But when Nicholas was considering turning professional, Bobby Jones wrote him a letter and tried to get him to remain an amateur, which was, yeah, because he thought that it would be great for the game of golf. If a player of Nicholas's potential would remain an amateur and, and stay true to the game, so to speak. But, guys weren't making that much money and, and they, and, you know, Palmer had a lot of, um, obligations beyond his, uh, competition career that I, in some ways I think distracted him from achieving as much as he would have because he was trying to earn money. And Nicholas was the same way. Interesting. The, 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 Circumstances began to change in the 60s as Nicholas came along. None of those guys were earning that much money, again, even as late as the 1960s. You know, obviously the tour was a lot different than it is today in another way, too, which was there wasn't a tournament every weekend like there is today. And, uh, you know, you had to have another way to, to earn a living. But finally, in 1938, Jimmy actually broke through and he started to become one of the greatest players of his era. And he he did start to earn, you know, a decent amount of money for back in the time. So he won his first tournament in 34, but in 38, like I said, he sort of broke through. What was it that he found in his game? What was the difference in how he played that allowed him to finally break through and become one of the game's better golfers? Well, I think um, he had the opportunity to practice a lot. At, at that time, as you can imagine, the, the, the depression was going on in the 1930s. And one of his first um, head pro jobs was down in Galveston. Texas. Mm-hmm. And he told the story about how uh, Nelson tells the same kind of tale about 
his circumstance as a club professional, there weren't that many people playing golf. Mm -hmm. So he could go out and play 18 holes in the morning and then come back to the pro shop and, uh, take care of a few things. Uh, you know, he might have an assistant there and then go out and work on his bunker game or putting or whatever it might be. Uh-huh. So th- when you mentioned that in 38, he finally won what was called the San Francisco match play tournament, uh, an official PGA tour event. He was 28 years old. So it had taken him a while to develop his skill level where he could beat the other pros. Um, and the other aspect was that he was not going out and spending or, or not entering every PGA Tour event that was open to him. So until about um, 1938, he, he just wasn't spending that much time trying to uh, be a PGA Tour professional. You had to travel a lot. Again, he had an obligation at that time. He was working at Braverman Country Club in Houston. So uh, I think as a combination of his skill level came up, because he, he had the time to practice while he was at his club professional job but then again he was applying himself more to trying to win those pga tour events hey let's go back to the beginning how was he introduced to the game and how did he learn the game and from whom well he, he got a job uh and, and this actually affects the whole rest of his life he got a job he's hired by jack burke senior mm-hmm. um to work at river oaks country club in houston and Jack Burke Sr. was one of the foremost golfers of his era. He almost, I can't remember if he almost won the U.S. Open or did. But anyway, that was the father of Jack Burke Jr., who mm-hmm. ultimately won the PGA Championship and the Masters in the 50s. So uh, Demerit got this job in the pro shop there with Jack Burke Sr. And in fact, one of his duties was being a babysitter almost for Jack Burke Jr., so he was introduced to the game, and um, he, he liked it, and he just seemed to just have a natural affinity for it, and um, just progressed right along. In his early 20s, again, he went down to Galveston and had this club job, um, and uh, had plenty of time to practice there, and just you know kept developing his skills. Was I believe he's hired by Braben Country Club around 1935 in Houston. That's about the fourth oldest. Uh, country club in Houston, mm-hmm. and it's still there and still um, uh, excellent country club. So um, he, he it's almost as though he was a fellow who developed his skills on the side. And by that, I mean, he didn't go to, he wasn't a high school golfer, dropped out of high school fairly early, uh, didn't go to college whatsoever, uh, just picked up the game uh kind of scrapping along and teaching himself. But on the other hand, uh, Jack Burke Sr., again, was one of the best golfers of his era. He learned a lot from him, I think. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a point, like like we just talked about, um, he didn't play all the time. He didn't enter all the tournaments. Um, he sort of picked up the game a little bit later. And wasn't there a point when Jimmy was young and trying to make it that he that he considered becoming a full time singer instead of a golfer. Can you talk about that? Yes, he, he was always a good singer, uh, and throughout his career, he sang at, at various events. In fact, Byron Nelson told me an anecdote about Demerit. He said, "If you could get him to shut up on the golf course, you could beat him." 
<laughs> Demera would literally stroll down the fairway singing a song, which obviously in this era you can't imagine <laughs> that. But and he did have a very rich, uh, strong voice, and um, in the, the uh, Galveston area there were casinos at that in the thirties and um, in nightclubs, and Demerit sang so well that he was asked by one of the big band uh, leaders to join his group. Uh-huh. and go on the road. But Demerit already had an interest in golf. He did have a full-time job. And again, this is the 1930s where jobs weren't that easy to come by. So he thought, well, I'll just stick with the golf rather than, than go into music. But he sang at Frank Sinatra's house in uh, Palm wow. Springs in California. Wow. I mean, he, yeah, he, he used to sing uh, um, during the Pebble Beach event. He would sing in the bars in the, area around the club yeah but he was an excellent singer and there's you may know this the he made a set of instructional yes. records yeah i wanted records. to talk about that in just yeah. a little bit the swings the thing which ironically is the name of your book as well hey let's let's talk a little bit about his personality his demeanor i think you'd find it very hard to find someone who didn't like Jimmy DeMerit. In fact, I think everyone liked him, didn't they? Yes, I think so. Um, and one way of measuring his appeal is the fact that Ben Hogan, who was one of the most dour, serious figures, not only in golf, but maybe in all of sport. I mean, he was so focused. His mm-hmm. intensity was remarkable. They got along great, and yet Jimmy was the—he was an extrovert, loose, and um, he told the story about Hogan, about how intense Hogan was, and, and this illustrates the difference between their personalities. They were in a match play event playing together, and they—they they were up something like six holes ahead, and they're—it's a thirty-six hole match, and they're getting into the. Uh, third nine of this of a 36 hole match and Hogan came over to demerit who he thought was being a little too loose and, and Hogan says would you be serious and focus on this we can kill these guys and, and demerit just laughed he's like you know I think we're gonna win I don't think we need to be too upset about this <laughs> but um he was he was so comfortable in his own skin, uh, very gregarious guy, and he was good to everybody. I was told stories when I was working on the book about how he would take uh, fifths of liquor around to the caddies who worked at various Houston <laughs> country clubs because he he was he knew you know these guys worked hard and they weren't going to be appreciated by that many people, but. He liked everybody and got along well with everybody from, again, the caddies all the way up to the president of the United States, movie stars like Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Johnny Weissmuller, who played in the Tarzan movies, mm-hmm. if you've forgotten, in the 30s and the 40s. Laurel and Hardy he even played golf with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, again, he was a friend with Gene Cernan. He was a friend of uh, um, Daryl Royal, who was the head football coach at the University of Texas in Austin back in the 60s. Just a, a remarkable figure for being that personable and um, approachable and uh, well liked. Sometimes professional athletes take the crowd for granted. They really don't care about the fans in the stands or the galleries lining the fairways. 
But I think what they forget is the fact that without the fans, without the crowds, there'd be no game to play. If the fans don't come, what's the point? Well, Jimmy knew just how important the fans were, didn't he? In fact, he called himself gallery bait. Explain that, gallery bait, and talk about Jimmy Demerit and the galleries. Well, again, he, he was so uh, comfortable out there on the golf course. He wasn't a guy that got up tight. Uh, if he was in, con- whether he was in contention or he was 12 shots out of the lead, he had the same personality. He, he just never froze. He never got uh, upset with himself. He was always loose. And again, he literally would sing in the on the fairways. He walked down it or he'd be joking with people in the crowd. And he liked being loose like that. And one time somebody said to him, gosh, if, if only you had been more serious about the game and focused, you would have won more events. Again, the guy finished, you know, he's still in the top 16 of everybody that's ever played the tour. But Damaris' response was, if I was not that loose, I wouldn't have won anything. Hmm. And he, that was the kind of demeanor he had. Now, it, I he had a competitive think that, fire. He had a competitive oh, fire burning inside oh, of him. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, who who would, at age 47, who would have the intensity and the motivation to be in contention for the U.S. Open or to finish fifth in the Masters at age 51? I agree with you completely. He definitely had a, a competitive uh, edge to him, and he wanted to win. Right, because he said, if if you're just out there and you have no fire, what's the point in playing if you're not out there trying to win. So on the outside, it might have looked like he's this really loose, fun, gregarious guy. But on the inside, that fire was burning. That's right. Um, One of the things you talked about in your book was this little trip, I believe he took to Japan with Sam Snead. And one of the comments was, how smooth his swing was. Paint a picture for us. I, I think one of the people in the gallery in Japan called him smoothie or something like that. Um, talk about how smooth his swing was and what were the strengths of Jimmy's game and what were his weaknesses? Well, in terms of strengths, Hogan claimed that Demerit was the most underrated golfer on the Pro Tour in, in that era. He also said that Demerit had shots that Hogan could not ever accomplish. He had a very diverse game. In other words, if he wanted to intentionally hook it, he could. Intentionally slice it or fade it, he could do that. He could hit a low ball. Um, He had a great variety of shots. If you see a picture of him, he had enormous forearms. He almost looked like Popeye. Uh, he claimed that that was from, uh, in, in the thirties, a club professional had to work on golf equipment. They literally had to file, uh, club heads and, uh, you know, the woods, et cetera. And he claimed that that's part of what helped develop his forearms, but he had very strong forearms. He did have a smooth swing, but I think part of why he did not have to, um, put a lot of torque into his turn and his body movement was because his arms were so strong. He could control the club with those forearms. But again, he was recognized as having a lot of creativity in his game, a lot of 
diversity and what he was able to pull off with his golf shots. To give you one example, he's, he was playing in the Masters. Um, he's playing the 15th hole, and unlike today where everything is manicured to a level of it looks like somebody took cuticle yeah. scissors to the grass <laughs> around the water and the bunkers, in that era, it was a little different. So he hits his second shot, it rolls, it hits the ground in front of the green on 15, but rolls back into the water. But it's basically half submerged, and he takes off his shoes and socks and wails on it and knocks it to about four feet, sank the putt for a birdie, and went on to win the event. But that was typical of him, that he could pull off a shot that not one out of a hundred other people could, what he won would probably even try. Most people would say, well, I've got to take a drop and <laughs> see if I can hit it up close, but not demerit. He, that was just his nature is that he thought he could uh, pull off almost any shot possible. Wow. Very cool. Uh, getting back to Hogan for a second. I have that quote here that you have in your book and it says, Ben said of Demerit, he was the most underrated golfer in history. This man played shots I hadn't even dreamed of. I learned them, but it was Jimmy who showed them to me first. Wow, you can't say much more than that, What you know, of what Hogan said. That's true. And when you consider that Hogan, even today, is considered one of the greatest shot makers in the game ever. So that's a, a, a remarkable endorsement, I think, for the playing ability of Demerit. Sure. He was also a terrific wind player. And you mentioned uh, Galveston before. And that's where he learned how to really play in the wind while he was working at Galveston. Talk about how he learned to play with the wind and how it helped him on tour. Well, uh, Galveston is close to the Gulf of Mexico and there's a breeze there almost all the time, uh, a minimum of breeze, and then it can be a pretty stout wind at other times. And um, he, he had, again, plenty of time to go out and practice, even though he had the, the head professional's job at a young age. But he would uh, just you know figure out how to work the ball either against the wind or playing with it or using the wind to knock down a shot, whatever was required. Um, he had a lot of practice there for several years uh, in Galveston. And also, you know, the time he spent in Houston, Houston's got a lot of wind itself. And um, Texas golfers, whether it's been Crenshaw or Nelson, whoever it might be, a lot of Texas golfers are credited for being able to work with the wind because they just have to encounter it as they're growing up, as they're developing as players out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, to play in the wind, to have to have that as a part of your game is is so important. And he really took advantage of what he could. And you have to love the game to practice like that. That's right. A quick anecdote about Byron Nelson when when he was at a club in in the Philadelphia area. They had to replace the sand three times in one year in a particular bunker because Nelson was practicing so much out of that bunker that he was knocking all the sand out of it. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Hey, of course, one of the reasons I wanted to do a show about golf right now is because the Masters is upon us. 
And as you said, Jimmy was the first man to ever win at Augusta three times. Why did he do so well at the Masters? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, th- I think he had a lot of respect for the event. And this is going back to the you know, late 30s, but then it had only been around six years and it hadn't quite attained the stature it has now, but he just, he liked the place. He had great respect for Bobby Jones. He liked the way they conducted the event. So it was a, a great experience for him as it always has been for all the pros. Uh, but to give you an idea of how he performed the event in 1940, he opened up with a 37 on the front nine. That's one over par. But then he shot a 30 on the back nine for a 67. Right. And he was in contention and he went on to win by four shots. Um, but I, I think he, he just, he liked the place. He liked the character of the event. And for some reason, it just fit his game in a way that when he played in the U.S. Open, uh, he, he did finish second to Hogan one year and he actually set a record. Yep, I that have that year, here. Yeah, yeah. Before Hogan finished ahead of him, he had actually set the score, the record for the lowest score in a U.S. Open. But then Hogan beat him. Uh, but I, I, for some reason, uh, Augusta's layout appealed to him, and um, he, he played at his best in that event. Again, was the first person to win it three times. He used to kid though that. Um, you know, there's a Nelson Bridge there. There's a Hogan Bridge. I think there's some water fountains named for other people. And he claimed, well, they haven't even named an outhouse for me. And yet I was the <laughs> first guy to win it three times. <laughs> but, you know, you know, what's funny about that is it goes back to what we talked about originally. He was. He was the first guy to win the Masters three times. He won 31 tournaments. And yet, so few people know about Jimmy Demerit. It's a real head scratcher. Yes, I agree. I, and but uh, again, um, as the new players come along, they they you know have their own remarkable accomplishments. I mean, Mickelson's won forty four events. Tiger's won eighty. Uh, VJ even has won thirty four. Mm-hmm. So they're you know they're. Uh, Tom Watson won 39. So there have been people that have you know, captured um, the spotlight uh, from some of the older players, and they were rightfully so. And so I think it's it's difficult to, for these uh, people like Demerit um, or Lord Mangrum, who won yep. 36 events. He only won one major. But I think it's difficult for some of those older figures to hold people's attention. You know, another guy from back then that we talked that that I've done a show about is Ralph Guldall. And I actually uh, uh, talked about why he had left the game and it was sort of a little uh, a little fuzzy. But you have your own theory about why he might have stepped away. What What's that theory about Ralph? Well, I, I cannot uh, identify the person who told me this story, but it was someone who was on tour with him. And they said that uh, they were describing that era that the professionals traveled together. They would stay in the same motel. They, they did, uh, um, almost like wagon trains of cars as mm-hmm. they went from one place to the next, because the tires were so bad on their cars that they had a flat, they might need help fixing a flat <laughs> or they might run out of gas. You name it. It, it. it was really for their own self-preservation. They traveled in groups and, um, apparently, 
uh, Goldall's wife was not um, well received by the other wives on tour. Huh. And it was heartbreaking to him. Huh. And yes, and it was so bad. And I don't, I'm not saying that his wife was such a bad person, but the, the circumstance was so difficult that it alienated him making and made him uncomfortable playing on tour. And so he got a club professionals job in Chicago and that's how he finished out his career. Wow. What a shame. What a yeah. shame. And, yeah. and it shows you the difference in the era. I mean, when you, consider the issues Tiger Woods has had and he's still out there and <laughs> thinks you're, you know, he's couldn't be more adored and uh, poor Lloyd, his wife's personality might have been a little quirky and it ends his career. Yeah, wow, what a shame. Yes. Hey, back to Demerit. We talked about the U.S. Open, the fact that he was the first guy to break 280, shot a 279, uh, at the U.S. Open in 1948 to hold the record, but along comes Hogan playing behind him, who shoots a 276 to win the thing. But that's right. Demerit Which set the record, I believe, to that point of what the lowest score was uh, cumulatively in a U.S. Open. Right, exactly. Um, in the PGA Championship, four times in the 13 PGAs that he played in. And this was when the PGA was a match play championship. Um, he made the semifinals, but he couldn't get over the hump and win the thing. He only played in one British Open, and he finished 10th. So, so I guess first question again, what was it about the PGA championship um, that he couldn't you know, get over the hump? And why did he only play in one British Open, which, by the way, was at Royal Birkdale? Well, uh, first about the PGA Championship, match play, as you may know, results uh, sometimes in some unusual winners um, and and vice versa, losers that you don't expect. And that's happened in some of the match play events in the last 15, 20 years on the PGA Tour, where somebody comes ahead and wins the event that just seems out of the blue. Um, It's a different format. Why? Demerit, with all his skills, could not uh, excel at that. I, I really don't have an answer to that, but I do know that um, in the PGA Championship, you have a lot of winners on their champion list that really weren't remarkable golfers in their entire career, but the match play uh, format suited their game, and they won the thing. Um in terms of the British Open, why he only played in one, the shoe, which was true of all the golfers in that era, all the way into the 60s, is that it was expensive to get to England to play in the event. And again, the compensation wasn't that great. You could bear, even if you won the thing, you could barely cover the expense uh, hmm. for getting over there. So that was the main reason he only played in one. The, the British Open became more popular and more significant in professional golf when Palmer started going over every year and he won 62, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and he gave more recognition to the event and then American golfers thought it, it restored the stature of the event when Palmer went over there, given he was so popular that people then started paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But prior to that time, again, Demerit and other golfers simply 
couldn't afford to get over there to compete in it. Mm-hmm. Hogan won it once. I think yeah, that was 53. in 53. Yep. And the only reason he didn't, I think, win the PGA that year is because it conflicted with the staging of the British Open. Yeah, but, at, that uh, yeah time, at that time, the two somehow, I mean, the majors weren't the majors like they are today, and those two tournaments overlapped. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting back to the Masters, and we sort of touched on this as well, one of the most magical things at Augusta is the course itself. It's so, as you said, perfectly manicured. But when Jimmy played, I think it's fair to say very few golf courses were kept in tip-top shape. Talk about how the golf courses back when he played, particularly in his early years on the tour were so different than they are today. The conditions of the courses, they, they weren't manicured. They weren't pieces of art. In fact, Byron Nelson said course conditions could be the biggest difference in how golf was played back in the day as compared to how it's played today. Yes, he, he made that statement to me. I, I wrote a book about Nelson. When I asked him, what's the greatest difference in the game of your era and today? And he said, course conditioning. And he gave me a couple of examples. He said that in his era, uh, the superintendent at a particular course that was hosting a PGA Tour event might go out and soak the ground in front of six of the greens. And then he would leave 12 of them dry in front of the greens, or he'd soak, <laughs> he'd soak six green surfaces and leave 12 dry. It, it was all over the board. It was arbitrary might be the wrong word, but it was not predictable. It was not consistent. As they today, every hole, every fairway is going to be the same. The bunker uh, character, you know, the sand. The, the green surface, everything's going to be consistent. So hold a hold, you know what you're facing. That was not the case in Demerit's era. Again, as I mentioned about Augusta National, even uh, that remarkable place, um, well, even, I don't think, it seems like they started changing in the 70s, but you can look back in the creeks, you could hit a ball in the creek and you could hit it out of the thing. They were just little barely a creek they were just uh, little streams or whatever but they weren't manicured uh, completely different circumstance um and nelson told me that part of the reason he became so accurate with his iron play and his approach shots was because he didn't want to have to have a long putt the the greens one green could be four on a stamp meter the next one's nine etc there's just no consistency whatsoever and again, speaking of the stamp meter, um, the Bermuda grass on golf courses in that era was very high, including even Augusta National, which didn't change to Ben. I think I can't remember it was the 80s or the, the 90s when they did that, but uh, bent grass had grain. And in that era, if you were hitting against grain on a putt, it could resist the ball and make it very difficult to keep mm-hmm. a putt on line. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with you completely that that was one of the significant factors in that era is that course conditioning was inconsistent, not just one course to the other, but literally within a round of golf that you would have. Another aspect is that a lot of the PGA Tour venues where they played the events were municipal courses. For example, in Atlanta, Georgia, 
Of course, it's called uh, North Fulton here. It's at Chastain Park. That hosted the 49 in 1950 events of the PGA Tour here in Atlanta. And that's a daily fee course here. It's just a, a municipal course. Houston had Memorial that hosted um, PGA Tour events. Pensacola had a, um, a muni that hosted PGA Tour events. And, and that was frequently the case. They, the point being that they weren't the best condition courses available in the United mm-hmm. States. They were simply courses where they could stage a professional event. So they faced completely different conditioning circumstances in that era than the golfers enjoy today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Staying on topic of the masters and keeping on, on topic with Jimmy Demerit. One of the things that you wrote about in your book was the fact that, well, let me do it this way. In 1964, Ken Venturi won the U.S. Open at Congressional, and he was completely dehydrated, and they told him, you shouldn't even be playing. And that's part of the legend, the lore of Ken Venturi was his U.S. Open victory. Jack Youngblood for the, for the Rams played in the Super Bowl on a broken leg. Michael Jordan had the flu or something like that prior to one of his big games in the uh, NBA Finals or the NBA playoffs. One of the things that I think is overlooked, now I don't know what he was suffering from, but the night before the final round, I think it was of the 1940 Masters, Jimmy Demerit wasn't doing well, and he spent the night in the hospital. And I think that's the tournament that the uh, William Richardson of the New York Times called it, and I quote, a somewhat drab one because of the ease with which Demerit won it. So when you look back on the 1940 Masters, again, I think it was 40. He also won in 47 and 50. That Masters, when you look back on it, was anything but drab. I mean, this guy, the night before the final round, was in the hospital. What happened there, and why is that not spoken about as much? Well, you, you may be uh, more on top of the facts than I am. I thought it was after Friday's round that he went into the hospital, and it, apparently it was just a stomach ailment. But uh, you are right that he spent a night in the hospital, and um, he had shot um, a 67 on Thursday, Friday, he shoots a 72, but he's still in contention. The scores weren't as low in that era as they are now. So he spends the night in the hospital. He goes back out on Saturday and shoots a 70, two under, and then 71 on Sunday to win by four shots. But I'm in complete agreement with you. Whatever the ailment was that he had, you would think it would have weakened him or almost disoriented him and that he was able to maintain his focus and and be that determined is astonishing. Now, on the other hand, he had won five times on tour that year from January up until the masters. It was a really remarkable year for him, probably his best year. And, uh, the, that masters win was his sixth win of the year in what a four month stretch. Wow. So I guess he was playing at such a high level at that time that despite sort of being knocked off his feet by whatever that ailment was, he, you know, he just um, slammed through and uh, kept playing well and won the event. 
What a what a remarkable thing to do. Um, what about 47 and 50? Anything stand out in particular in those two Masters victories? I would say if, if you look at 47, the fact that he finished two strokes ahead of Byron Nelson and Frank Stranahan. Now, Stranahan was an amateur. It's forgotten, but he was probably one of the best amateur players of the 40s and the, the 50s. I think he may have finally turned professional mm-hmm. at some point but he spent most of his uh competitive career as an amateur but again winning against nelson uh, hogan was in the event sneed all the great players were in that um and then in 1950 um he started out um fast and um then he finished with a, a 69 on sunday and at the time, while he was out on the golf course, Jim Ferrier, another golfer, was actually ahead um, when he finished the first nine, and Ferrier only needed to shoot a 38, two over par, coming in on the final nine to beat Demerit. He shot a 41, <laughs> and Demerit wound up winning by two strokes, and a lot of people kidded him, and uh, Demerit... Uh, broke into song after that event and it, it, apparently there was a song at the time called how lucky i am he, <laughs> he was he was making light of it but as is the case which has happened with a lot of guys i mean if you know if somebody else doesn't post the number and you're the lowest golfer you win the thing yep yep just look at uh the recent uh bay hill where uh francisco molinari won he came in he posted the number real early and nobody could catch him that's part of the game that's right. That's right. I agree. Hey, you know, it wasn't all glamour for Jimmy. In fact, he had some battles with the um, proverbial powers that be. Talk about his battle with Horton Smith, the PGA of America, which at that time was the ruling, the governing body of the tour. Mexico. And the role all of this played in the creation of the PGA Tour. Who were some of the other players affected by being suspended because they played in Mexico? What happened there? Tell us about this entire situation. Well, at that time, the PGA Tour, in order to protect its events, had a policy that if a PGA Tour event was taking place and you were a member of the PGA tour, you were compelled to either play in the event or sit out. You could not participate in an alternate event at that same time. And it wasn't a a significant factor for most players, but that particular year, uh, this is in the 1950s or the 1950s, Demerit decided to play in the Mexican open and Roberto Di Vicenzo, who eventually won the British Open, he was one of the, the players. He was an Argentinian, I believe. Um, he was going to play in it and several other Americans. Well, the PGA Tour said, oh, no, you can't do that, and, and we're going to find you. And it's, the, the odd thing is that it worked out in the favor of demerit because people were outraged that he was being fined and um he was being criticized for playing in this Mexican event. And even the Mexican government got involved and they said, you will not uh, disparage our event or slight it by claiming that you know, your golfers shouldn't be playing in it. Uh, and they didn't address the policy issue, anything like that. They just basically said, look, uh, 
these uh, we have a wonderful event. These golfers should be proud to have the opportunity to play in it, and that's the way you should consider it. And that's the way the public responded. And not only that, but the United States government wound up commending demerit for uh, enhancing foreign relations by playing in this event. Wow! So it, it was an odd circumstance. But uh, more to your point, that sort of conflict is why eventually there became a PGA Tour which was separate from the PGA of America. As you know, the PGA Tour is for the professional golfers that compete on the tour. The PGA of America is the organization uh, for the club professional, I would put it. Um, And that's about, what, Mm 28,000-plus people at this time. But they're separate organizations now as of the late 60s. And it was issues like that that just culminated in finally the tour players saying, look, we want to run this for ourselves. This is how we want to conduct things. And we don't want to be uh, contained in our opportunities or how we conduct the tour by uh, people that we don't think appreciate how we want to proceed. Mm -hmm. And didn't this also sort of strike a wedge between Demerit and Horton Smith and, but the two of them really never got along and it's not easy not to get along with Jimmy Demerit. Well, it it might have been that Smith didn't like someone who was um, challenging his authority and who who had the wherewithal to challenge. In other words, Demera was such a popular figure. He was such a um, he he had a presence beyond his own sport. Again, he was friends with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, all these Hollywood figures, politicians, you name it. Horton Smith was not that sort of uh, figure, and there just might have been a bit of a conflict there that um, Demerit wasn't towing the line, and Smith felt obligated to try to sort of um, contain him. No conversation about Jimmy Demerit would be complete without discussing his wardrobe. In fact, your book, Jimmy Demerit, The Swing's the Thing, features a photo of Jimmy that appeared in Time magazine as he is posing with much of his very colorful wardrobe. Has there ever been any other golfer whose wardrobe, what he decided to wear on any given day, was covered and written about as in-depth as it was, And why was it such a story? In fact, in 1940, William Richardson, who was then a reporter for the New York Times, wrote, and this is in your book, one of the most picturesque figures the game has ever produced, an easygoing, eye-pleasing fellow who really seems to be enjoying himself in tournament play, demerit went out today as though he were starting out to play a round with no more depending on it than a 5 or $10 Nassau, garbed in his usual green ensemble with the brim of his hat turned up in front and down and back to give him a rakish appearance. In a Times Magazine article in 1947, After winning the Masters, the author of the article wrote, he has his sports clothes made to order in electric blue, bottle green, canary yellow and vermilion by a Fifth Avenue tailor. Most of all, he likes to wear outlandish hats. His current favorite, 
A Swiss yodeler's hat, says Jimmy. It keeps people talking. He went on to say, I think there is no more beautiful place in the world than a green golf course, and I want to dress for it. Why was there such a fascination with his wardrobe? Paint a picture for us. Well, the origin of this was that Demerit had a a, a promotional uh, contract with a uh, manufacturer of attire. This is 3839. So he goes to New York to be outfitted for the clothes he wanted. At the time, about all you saw in a golf course were uh, tan, brown, gray, black, maybe. That's all men wore on a golf course. Demerit arrives at the showroom of this clothing manufacturer, and he's being shown the typical fabrics that men would wear. And he looks across the room, and he sees all of these electric colors that you're describing. And he says to the fellow, I like that stuff. Why can't I have my clothes made out of that? (laughs) And the guy says, Oh no, that's women's material. (laughs) You don't want clothes made out of women's material. He says that, you know, the hell I don't. And they go across the room and he starts picking out all this outrageous material. And he not only had his clothes made from these very bright colors, but he went to a shoe manufacturer and he took swatches of some of this material and he had saddle golf shoes. That's where there's, you know, a mm-hmm. strip of leather across the center of it. And he had uh, a replica of the material made into these saddle shoes. And he had you know, multiple pairs of them made. So he just, he found that that sort of colorful attire was appealing. It was also very comfortable too, because men wore wool, uh, you know, clothing and these women's fabrics were lighter, thinner, and more comfortable to wear. And he was the first guy literally to do that. And I think he liked the attention it brought him. It's, 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 I think he was described as a walking rainbow at one point by one writer. If I'm not <laughs> mistaken. Um, and so he, he, you know, he, he just had these outrageous uh, outfits. And one thing I discovered when I was working on the book is his mother-in-law was knitting him Tam O'Shanter hats. If you know what yeah, that sure. character is, it looks yeah. like it looks like it's from Ireland or Scotland or something, and in outrageous colors, very bright uh, pinks and yellows and orange, etc. Um, I don't think you could find anything like it today. But again, they were you know, made by his mother-in-law. Huh. Just a fun guy. Hey, we've talked a lot about Jimmy's game and his personality. Let's do a little word association and name association. I'll throw a name or a topic out, and you tell me about the merit and how that person or topic relates. And let's start with the boat, Mr. Five Putt. Oh, I've forgotten the anecdote, but I I know it relates to the fact that I believe it was in the U.S. Open that he he. Uh, took a five putt in an event and, and uh, he just reminded himself of how he could go astray in the golf course. He named his boat uh, the five putt or the Mr. Five Putt. <laughs> Henry Cotton and the 1956 U.S. Open. Well, there, in, in that instance, um, and, and this was not only demerit, but there were other golfers who thought that Cotton was not placing his ball, uh, replacing his ball properly when he would mark on the green. And and that's something that has uh, been true throughout the history of the PGA Tour, even in 
the last 10 years. Mm. In other words, a person, they've got the ball on the green. They put their mark down. When they come back, they might advance the ball three inches or even more and then pick up the mark instead of placing it right in front of that mark. And Cotton was notorious for that. And um, he was challenged on it. And as I recall, it, it basically ended his activity on the PGA Tour. He never acknowledged there was an issue. There was no resolution to it. He just realized he was unwelcome and stopped playing in the United States. But he was winning. He was doing quite well on the, mm-hmm. the U.S. Tour. How about I Love Lucy? Well, in the early 1950s, Lucille Ball had uh, one of the, it was called I Love Lucy, one of the best um, rated shows on television, a comedy series. And she would have various celebrities on there. And Demerit appeared on the show. And the uh, plot was that um, Desi and, and his friend Fred, I yeah, guess it was, uh, they didn't, uh, Ricky, they didn't Ricky want their Fred. wives. Ricky and Fred. Yes. And they didn't want their wives playing golf with them. It was their time to get away, and the wives wanted to play. And so they enlisted Jimmy Demerit to teach them how to play golf. And so he appears in the show teaching them how to play golf. And it's a fun show. I've seen it. Uh, It's available, and I've Mm -hmm. seen the show, and and he did very well. Mm -hmm. Jack Burke Jr. Talk about Jack Burke Jr. and Jimmy Demerit. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Jack Burke Jr.'s father was the first person to hire uh, Jimmy to work at a golf course. And so... uh, Burke was younger than Demerit by many years and uh, was a child when Demerit was a teenager. And Demerit literally babysat for uh, Burke Jr. And they stayed friends throughout their lives. In the late 50s, they partnered together to found Champions Golf Club in Houston, which again hosted a Ryder Cup, U.S. Open, uh, the Tour Championship eventually, et cetera. A very successful club. Um, and they had a, a lifelong friendship. They were completely different in personality. Again, Demerit being very gregarious, very outgoing, almost outrageous. Burke being uh, reserved, quiet, and uh, a, a very serious person uh, overall. But he was congenial, but uh, not the life of the party like Demera mm-hmm. was, but, uh, it was a lifelong friendship and, uh, again, business partners. Um, so I, I think it was one of the most important relationships in Demera's life. Mm-hmm. Why the comparisons to Walter Hagen? Well, Hagen was one of the first people to, uh, uh to establish that a, a golf professional was an important figure in the world of sports. Again, this is going back into the 1920s. And he was flamboyant. Um, he was a partier, and Demerit certainly was. And in fact, starting in the late 1930s, when Demerit finally started winning, he and Hagen, who was at that point past his prime, but still participating on the PGA Tour, they would party together. Um, you know, they both liked to take a drink, and um, they enjoyed themselves while they were uh, on the tour. Mm-hmm. The instructional. The Swings the Thing. Well, that was a very unusual project. Uh, Demerit recorded on 45 RPM records uh, instructional uh, tips. Uh, Each one was different. The full swing, chipping, whatever it might be. And there was a a series of brochures with it that explained 
what you were learning on each 45 RPM. And the thing that's always struck me about the practical aspect of this is you'd have to have a record player <laughs> playing this 45 RPM. So where are you going to be doing you this? You better have you a big room in your house. Your living room or your <laughs> den. That's right. You, you needed a vaulted ceiling to be able to swing your club and listen to these records back in that era. They weren't that successful, but uh, it's a very curious item in the world of golf memorabilia. They were pretty revolutionary for the time, though, weren't they? I mean, his idea of of matching your golf swing with the rhythm of music, uh, I, I think that's pretty revolutionary. Well, you know, I, even in today's era, don't they sometimes say they count to three, yeah. you know, one, two, three. And then the, I, I think that the notion that rhythm is so important, tempo, as it's also known, uh, is extremely important. So I think he was, he had a legitimate, um, and worthwhile contribution to instruction in what he prepared. I just don't know if that format of the 45 RPM record, uh, could ever have been successful. <laughs> One name I didn't throw in there was Ben Hogan, and we touched upon Ben a little bit earlier, but I think it deserves a little more discussion. Talk about their wonderful friendship and how well they played golf together. I mean, we're talking about Ben Hogan, whom you actually said was perhaps, um, you know, maybe one of the most standoffish people in sports history, but yet he and Demerit got along so well. What was it? Well, I think Demerit respected Hogan's integrity. He he was a uh, he might have been a almost difficult person to know. He was so reserved. He he was so quiet. Um, a very demanding fellow. But I think Demerit liked the fact that he he had great integrity, and he you know he was what he was, uh, there was no affectation or pretension about him. And even though Demerit was very flamboyant and over the top in some ways, still he was a very genuine person and caring. And, uh, I just think that Hogan was fond of him and the, their you know, relationship developed over time. Again, they partnered for six wins in four ball play on tour and through playing together, um, and associating together, they you know just developed the friendship that they had. But it is, uh, to your point, of a very unusual pairing. You, um, I think Brooks Kepka and uh, Dustin Johnson are great buddies on tour, but they seem like they're very similar mm-hmm. in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of loose guys, uh, affable, typical jocks, somewhat. That was not the case with Hogan and Demerit. They were very different in personality and uh, manner. But yet uh, they respected one another and um, uh, spent a lot of time together. And um, I, I, I think that um, at the heart of it was, again, just a mutual respect and um, appreciation of um, the unique qualities each fellow had. Mm-hmm. We also said a couple of times that Jimmy Demerit won 31 times on tour. He had a couple other victories, too. Is was it? Yes, he did. Was it? Was it a disappointment? Should he have won more? And if so, why didn't he? Well, I, I, again, he you know came so close. Again, the uh, what was the forty eight open where you know it, it took a, a record 
beating uh, accomplishment by Hogan mm-hmm. to beat him in that. Uh, he almost won the 57 Open. Um, I, I think that um, he did get a lot out of his game. Um, in some ways, his lifestyle might have detracted a bit from uh, his focus on his play. One of the things I think I point out in the book is the fact that World War II intervened mm-hmm. during a time period that probably would have been some of the most productive of his career. Again, he won six times on tour in 1940. Late 1941, World War II begins. So 42 through 45, the tour is, um, well, 42 through 43, it's shut down. They start doing things again in 44. Uh, and then in 45, Nelson sets his record of 11 in a row. He won 18 events out of that year. So things were active again, but Demerit was just coming out of the Navy that year. So I think he lost um, three, almost four years of what would have been his pr- most productive time. And that his age at that point was, he was 30 in 1940. He's 35 by the time he gets out of the service. So even for the best golfers, that's really the downslope of their career usually. So I think if if he had not gone into the service, I really feel that he would have won anywhere from eight to 12 more events on tour, I think, mm-hmm. during that time period in particular. How should Jimmy Demerit be remembered? Well, again, I think for his personality as much as anything, great accomplishments on tour, but um, – he was just so beloved by so many different people, again, all the way from presidents of the United States down to the caddies that carried golf clubs at public courses in Houston. And um, it's uh, it's difficult in our era to imagine a golfer being that direct and connected with, as you mentioned earlier, the galleries and the common man, so to speak. They, we just live in a different um, era of uh, people not being able to be that uh, loose and comfortable with the people that are their fans and the, the general public. Demerit, for example, could go into restaurants in Houston, even at the height of his fame, and sit down and have his meal and a beer or two or whatever without being disturbed. And for most of the more famous professional golfers in this era, that's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd be interrupted. You know, they couldn't get a spoon to their mouth because people would be trying to get an autograph, et cetera. But again, I think he was a, a very personal guy. He contributed to the game, everything from being a champion, winning the Masters three times, to establishing one of the great golf clubs in America, champions. Uh, one of the things we didn't touch on, it was Demerit who organized the first Legends of Golf tournament. Mm-hmm. With, with senior players in Austin, Texas, that quickly took off and became the senior tour and then what is now the champions tour, a very successful uh, professional circuit. But he was the guy that um, stimulated that very first event, and, and that was tremendous accomplishment. And people have now forgotten that he was the guy that made that happen back then. Interesting. There's so much more in your book that we haven't touched upon and we could talk for quite some time, but I don't want to give it all away. You wrote the book quite some time ago, 2004, but it's still out there. It's a really terrific book. Jimmy Demerit, the swings, the thing, where can people get a hold of your book? 
Well, I think they can still find it on eBay. There are used copies that come up for sale all the time, and I, I think that would probably be the, the most likely place to find a copy. Awesome. You working on anything interesting right now, John? Well, uh, let's see. The most recent book I did on golf three years ago I wrote The History of Golf in Georgia, mm-hmm. and that was my most recent project. Well, John, you're a terrific writer. I want to thank you so much for coming on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I really enjoyed our conversation. And again, thanks so much. Well, thank you, and and thank you for sustaining the legacy of uh, these great figures in golf. You got it. Thank you. You know, one of the reasons I launched this podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, was to talk about the forgotten careers of so many great players in the history of sports. And there's no doubt that Jimmy Demerit fits the profile. As John pointed out, as of the recording of this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, Demerit was number 16 on the all-time wins list of the PGA Tour with 31 victories, including three Masters. He was still contending for championship victories well into his 40s. And yet, when the conversation comes around to the game's all-time greats, very few ever mention the name Jimmy Demerit. Maybe the only time his name gets mentioned is when the tour visits Augusta National. I sure hope you enjoyed today's show, and a big thank you to John for joining us. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, it's time to talk baseball. And we welcome back to the podcast Peter Gordon as we take a look back at the terrific career of pitcher Dolph Luque. Thanks again for listening today, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.